Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the CrocCast. I am Ambassador Susan D. Page. From 2002 to 2005, I served on the mediation team that helped the Sudanese government and the Sudan People's Liberation Movement and Army, or the SPLMA, end Africa's longest running civil war through a negotiated peace agreement, the CPA. The comprehensive peace agreement provided for a referendum to be held after six years for the people of Southern Sudan to vote to remain united with Sudan or to secede. And in 2011, the people voted overwhelmingly to secede and the new nation of South Sudan was born. In 2011, I became the first US ambassador to the newly independent Republic of South Sudan. This past academic year, I was a visiting professor of the practice at Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. This conversation has been organized by the Catholic Peacebuilding Network whose secretariat is hosted at the Croc Institute. CPN is a global network of 23 university institutes, bishops' conferences, development agencies, and lay organizations that collaborate to accompany Catholic peacebuilders in areas with intractable conflict and violence. This episode is part of a series examining the mutual impacts between the COVID-19 pandemic and Catholic peacebuilding, and will focus on the way the pandemic is affecting the delicate peace process in the world's youngest nation, South Sudan, and the role of the Catholic community in that process. So just for some background, civil war broke out in December of 2013 in South Sudan. And since that brutal civil war started, more than 400,000 individuals have been killed and 4 million people have been displaced from their homes, either within the country or in other countries. The conflict is complex, involving the government and an ever-widening array of opposition groups, but the initial spark began as a conflict between the supporters of President Salva Kiir and supporters of his former vice president, Dr. Riyak Mashar. In 2018, after several failed ceasefires and partial peace agreements broke down, the regionally mediated revitalized agreement on the resolution of the conflict in South Sudan or RRSIS, was signed by five major armed and non-armed parties, including President Kiir and Riyak Mashar, representing the SPLMA in government, the SPLMA-IG, and the SPLMA in opposition, or SPLMA-IO, respectively. The implementation of the peace agreement has been impeded multiple times, and observers worry whether the agreement can bring peace. The Catholic bishops of South Sudan and the South Sudan Council of Churches have played important roles in supporting and facilitating the peace process. Pope Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, reinforced the peace process in April 2019 when they hosted a two-day ecumenical retreat at the Vatican for South Sudan's leaders, a retreat marked by the Pope kissing the feet of the various leaders in a humble appeal for peace. Pope Francis and Archbishop Welby have also announced their desire to make an unprecedented joint visit to South Sudan. 
As a follow-up to the Vatican retreat, in January of this year, the Santa Gidio community, a lay Catholic community renowned for its role in the Mozambique peace agreement and other peace processes, facilitated an additional agreement, the first to include all the political parties in South Sudan in committing to a cessation of hostilities and continued dialogue. But unfortunately, COVID-19 has cast all of this into great uncertainty. We have with us today some distinguished guests to discuss the South Sudan peace process, the Catholic community's role, and the impact of COVID-19. Next, we have Father James Oyet Latancio. Father Oyet is Secretary General of the South Sudan Council of Churches. He has been part of the council's leadership since 2015, and his work with the council is particularly focused on initiatives for peace building, healing, and reconciliation, as well as support for the council's 2018 action plan for peace. Thank you for being here, Father Latencio. Also with us is Andrea Bartoli. Dr. Bartoli is the president of the Santa Gidio Foundation for Peace and Dialogue. He is also a visiting fellow at Columbia University's Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, and is a member of the steering group of the Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes. Thank you for joining us, Andrea. Nice to be here. So let me start with asking Father James, what have been the most significant ways in which the Catholic Church and other religious actors in South Sudan have facilitated the peace process since the outbreak of civil war in 2013. Thank you very much, my dear friends. In this conversation, the Catholic Church and other religious actors in South Sudan since the dawn of the conflict in 2013 immediately got involved with a statement saying, stop this senseless war. Stop these senseless killings. They went and met the president personally, President Salva Kiir Mayardit, and they also met his vice, who had escaped by that time towards Ethiopia, Dr. Yakmachar Taini, to tell them, brothers, Stop this senseless war. The church, right from the beginning, have been the part of this peace process, have facilitated the bridging process, the healing process, the building of confidence among the leaderships. Although it's a challenging situation, but we are hopeful that. One day, one time, peace will prevail. So the church, especially the Catholic Church, has been full-time with all its members, leadership, enhancing that the leadership give peace a chance for South Sudan. Thank you, Father James. Could you maybe just speak a little bit about the reconciliation effort that took place throughout the country? and how that was led by the churches and actually imams as well, but basically through a lot of the religious leaders to try to bring healing to the country. Did that work thank well in your opinion? Yes, thank you very much. The peace process, the reconciliation process at the grassroots 
since we started through the action plan for peace have got some impact. We have been engaging the communities through support from other international partners like the USID, from the European Union, from other friends, the UK government, from the Norwegian government, in order to change the mentality, the mindset of the people of South Sudan at the grassroots. Now, most of the South Sudanese at the grassroots, they are ignorant. Whatever information they get from their leadership in Juba or some of their brothers and sisters in the diaspora, for them is truth, and they believe in that truth. But we, the church and the mosque, have tried to untie this link by telling the, the people at the grassroots that you don't need to kill yourselves for nothing, for no reason. Why do you attack anywhere? Why do you attack a Dinka? Why do you attack a Shuluk? Why do you attack a Murle? All are South Sudanese, only that God created us in these different ethnic belongings. But all of us are images of God. Through the community conversation that we had in the communities, through the people-to-people -people dialogues that we had in the communities, the effects are there. To the point, the process of the national dialogue initiated by President Salva Kiir, when the, the guys, the leadership went for consultation to the ground, they found the ground was ready to receive, to listen to them. Because we told the people, we don't need to kill ourselves. We live together, we share the same schools, we share the same health centers, if they are told there. We share the same land together. So the impact of the local reconciliation, the community reconciliation, the people-to-people -people peace processes reconciliation have got a big impact. A good example is the Anyuak community. They had been killing themselves. Today, as I speak, an Anyuak can walk in the village in Pushala, in the Pibora administrative area, without thinking that somebody's going to attack him from his back. The same thing is happening among the Azande. Azande men, Azande women can walk, a woman can go without the fear that a man is coming to rape her because they looked at each other's eyes. But what is lacking in this reconciliation is the justice part, the part of justice, the part of accountability. All these brothers of ours who have committed these atrocities, in the process of reconciliation, they still remain armed. Thank you very much, because obviously reconciliation is important, but without the justice and accountability, peace will never really hold. But we'll, we'll come back to that issue in, in just a minute. But I want to turn to Andrea and ask him first, what do you think, Andrea, the impact of the 2019 April ecumenical retreat that was hosted by the Pope, what impact do you think it had on the peace process? And then we can go from there about Santa Gidio's role as well. Thank you. I think that the impact was enormous, enormous and surprising to all in, in a curious way, even surprising to the Pope himself. The Pope has spoken about the moment and he said, 
my guardian angels told me. I didn't know that I was doing this before entering the room. My guardian angels told me this and I did it. And I think that it's important to capture this element of freshness, of novelty, of surprise. I was in a very important phone call just a few weeks ago with American and uh, British and Norwegian uh, high-level diplomats, and, and the, the most senior of them said to the friends in Rome or Sant'Egidio, make sure when you see Pope Francis again, to tell him that when he kneeled, begging for peace, we were all with him. He spoke for us, we were with him. There is a people working for peace for many, many years that found life and hope in that gesture. We were with him. And I think that the strength of that statement is particularly true in South Sudan. I think that South Sudan responded to the Pope gesture exactly as Father James was, was saying before. Brothers, wake up. What are you doing? Peace is possible. Open yourself to peace. Be reasonable. Think of all the suffering that this war is bringing about. The Pope was really giving silently voice to millions of people literally longing for a different future. And so I think that the impact was, to me as a, as a conflict resolution scholar, very interesting because it's really counter to a lot of literature that really stresses power structures, that really stresses interest, that really stresses the negotiating processes and so on. And this is clearly a very dramatic gesture. It's a rupture of sorts. But we know from President Salva Kiir personally, Sant'Egidio followed up with him immediately. He was in Rome after that, came to prayer and so on, that he was personally moved. He was literally shaken by the Pope going down to his knee and kissing the feet and so on. And the same for the others. And I think that what we see is the power of a dramatic gesture that really is able to kiss the entire population of South Sudan. It's like the Pope saying, I really want to kiss your feet because your feet are the feet of those who are needing this peace. This peace needs to come. And I don't know how many people in the podcast are, are aware, but in the U.S., and not only in the U.S., there was a very negative response to the Pope gesture. Many felt that it was absurd that an office, you know, that is so high, so important, that where princes and, uh, and kings, you know, used to come and kiss the right. the, the, sacred, the sacred shoes of the Pope. Now we have this reversal. Is the Pope kissing the feet of... But that's exactly what Jesus said. But it's this incredible reversal of doing the word, you know, to say right. if the word is said, it needs to be needs to be acted upon. You know, Jesus said, act on these words. And, and I think that Pope Francis has this very fresh, inviting attitude, but it's clearly startling. And for yeah, I mean, people, I, I think it just 
one of the things, I mean, I always think about Jesus washing the feet of the others and the first is the last and the last will be the first. So I think for a lot of Catholics, it really resonated. And I'd like to ask Father James, because one of the things that I heard from a lot of my South Sudanese friends was that they were ashamed, not by the gesture itself, but that they had to have this happen to their leadership and sort of to be shamed by them. Maybe I can just get Father James to to say, what was he hearing? Because the Pope has long been really quite obsessed with South Sudan. Even when I was ambassador, he already wanted to, to come to South Sudan. And his advisors kept saying it was too unsafe, you know, the war, et cetera. But he did go to Central African Republic and he went to Uganda. So he did meet with some South Sudanese, but obviously not in South Sudan. So we know that he is clearly concerned, has made regular calls for peace and in his in his own homilies and whatnot, which is unusual. But Father James, how do you think people on the ground in South Sudan saw the Pope's gesture and what it meant? Did it make them feel united that the Pope was really with them? Or did it make them feel ashamed or something else? Well, thank you very much. The people in the streets of South Sudan felt ashamed that the Pope kissed the legs of their leadership. They said the leadership were not worthy of that gesture. Uh And all of them, as I speak now, they keep saying, was that kiss of the leadership legs a blessing or a curse? Even President Kiir, when he came back to Juba and he was addressing the parliament, he said he never expected the Pope to kneel down and kiss his feet. But he found the Pope kissing his feet. Yes. and he I, said, I remember just seeing the live video of it. He tried to, like, no, don't do this. Yes, he tried to say, like St. Peter say, not only my leg, even my hands. So he tried. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to say no to it. But however, the Pope gave them this message that as I kiss your feet, go and do the same mm-hmm. to your people in South Sudan. Take the message of peace, take the message of hope to your people. I was in the hall there when the Pope was speaking, when he did that gesture. Wow. In the end, as we speak today, it seems the president says he will not betray his people. Dr. Yagmacha says the same thing. Tabandeng says the same thing. And all of them keep saying the same thing. But are However, they that's the point. Yeah. Words are being said, but actions are not there. Well, let me let me go back to Andrea then. Andrea, Santagidio has been able to make significant progress in peace processes. Santagidio has a unique style of sort of track to mediation diplomacy. What can you tell us about what is unique about Santagidio's approach to peace building? and why it's working in, why it has worked in South Sudan. 
there are many elements that are clearly unusual about Sant'Egidio, and yet there is something very old about Sant'Egidio. Sant'Egidio clearly believes in words, and believing words are sacred, and believing in the capacity of people to say sacred words. And Nyerere liked to say Sant'Egidio is a house of peace. And if you are a leader and you are remotely struggling with your conflict, you know that you can come to Sant'Egidio and speak. Speak in a form that is hypothetical in nature. Okay, this is my situation, this is my war, this is my conflict. Mm -hmm. Could it be that? Could I consider this? Well, this kind of reasoning is extremely difficult because if you speak with the wrong person at the wrong time, the wrong way, you are dead. Mm -hmm. It's not that peace is easy. Rabin was not killed by a Muslim. Right. Gandhi was not killed by <laughs> anyone but a Hindu. <laughs> exactly. Sadat, Sadat was killed by somebody of his own. You know, peace is a very, very dangerous thing. Sent right. So to, to think about peace and to speak about peace safely, such that peace has a chance, you need to have a special place. So Sant'Egidio offers that place to come and reflect. Exactly. And are the lay persons of Sant'Egidio's community, are they all trained in peace building or mediation? They're not trained in a Western way. No, it doesn't have to be Western. <laughs> no, but just to say that their understanding of training is that they have been trained day by day by life of prayer, service, and friendship. So that in a way, there is no doubt that the self-understanding of Sant'Egidio is that the Lord wanted Sant'Egidio to exist in Rome after Vatican II. There is no doubt that we understand ourselves as something that was born in Rome after Vatican II for a reason. Peace mm -hmm. being one of the major reasons. Okay. Because the Catholic commitment to peace actually starts in Rome dramatically. Leo goes towards the barbarians coming with no armies, right. no military force, just himself as a Pope speaking. And the words, this is also interesting, are actually useful to listen first. So this is just conflict resolution one-on-one. Right. On one. The important thing is to listen, but if you look at any conflict, there is an enormous, enormous gap between the capacity of the parties to speak and articulate and the capacity of the parties to be heard. What Sant'Egidio did in South Sudan was a very simple, small step, as you notice at the beginning, we simply made the process a little bit more inclusive. That's we right. Had, we had a SOMA part that was not participating before into a process that was then truly inclusive. But that listening part is a complicated one because as we see in the case of the Pope, peace is always trying to be. But for parties, it's very difficult to listen to the requirements of peace. But look at this country too, look at the United States. You know, how difficult it is 400 years after slavery to listen to the plea of the slaves, to the horror of slavery, to the anguish of the lynched. Exactly. It's very difficult to listen to the sorrow of someone else. It is already difficult to listen to your own because once you have your daughter raped, your mother killed, your brother 
massacred and so on, your voice is very strident. That's it's right. Very, it's very difficult to speak in peace, for peace, after those traumatic experiences. This is why Sant'Egidio has these very, very long sessions with parties separately, not all together. And Father James can testify, he went himself with the delegation of the South Sudanese Council of Churches because honestly, the force for peace in South Sudan have been the people of South Sudan, the churches of South Sudan. Those, those were the ones that kept the dream and the commitment to peace alive in South Sudan, even when the leadership was committed to war, committed to violence, committed to weapons, and so on. Sant'Egidio is simply providing a space for these voices that were looking for peace to find ways and words. So what we did was simply after the kissing, Salvakir was startled. We went to him and said, what do you think about us reaching out to Soma? Let me just say for our audience, Soma is a collection of opposition groups, mostly unarmed, that were outside of the peace agreement. So just so that our listeners understand who, who we're talking about. Yeah, so just to say that peace is always catalytic in a way. Peace cannot happen unless it is inclusive and engaging. So what Sant'Egidio does is simply to say, okay, peace is very small and very tentative. We can do this piece. We can do this other piece. We can do this other one and so on and so on. In that sense, we are very pragmatic. And we realize that a lot of people speaking about peace or advocating about peace do not have the patience to really do the pragmatic work that you as an ambassador know very well. It's very painstaking, you know, because right. one word make a big difference and one meeting make a big difference and there is a little things that cannot be done now, but maybe can be done tomorrow and so on. And this is why I really believe that this gesture of Pope Francis without the churches, without the, the, the people, would have been foolish. Mm-hmm. And I agree completely on the, on the perception of the shame. When we did the meeting in January, that feeling was very prevalent among the participants. They really felt that they had to do peace. They had to do something. Okay. I honestly don't believe that peace comes in shame. I think mm-hmm. that peace comes in hope. And, and I think that uh, what we hope for the next phase, once the coronavirus is over, is that people of South Sudan will start giving each other the hope that they can live together in peace. This is a very complicated process because as we know, the state formation process can be very bloody. It was definitely very bloody in many countries in Europe, very bloody in the US. It's a very complicated process, but I I think that we should all in a way cheer and, and support the South Sudanese as they try to become the states that they need to be, as they try to become this peaceful state that the society already wants that to be. That's right. Well, you mentioned COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So let's discuss that for for a minute. COVID-19 has now spread to the leadership of South Sudan. We, We know that one of the vice presidents, Riyak Mashar, he came down with it, as well as several others. 
And many have now died from coronavirus, including most recently the death of the Minister of East African Affairs, Dr. John Luke Jok. It also seems to be unclear whether or not it's as a result of the coronavirus, but according to the ceasefire verification mechanism, the training sites for the unification of the armed forces are lacking funding, and the cantonment sites and training centers are on the verge of collapse. That was just from a meeting that they held in the last two days. In addition, the RJMEC, which is the body that is doing the joint monitoring and evaluation of, of the peace agreement, they are not meeting because they have lack of computer access and the ceasefire is being violated, as we know. So maybe let me start with um, Father James. What do you think the impact of COVID-19 has been on South Sudan's peace process? COVID-19 pandemic, its impact on South Sudan, peace process is too great. As you have just mentioned, the RGMEC are not meeting. The citizen cannot go and verify the violations of the ceasefire mm-hmm. in Lanya and Ye areas. They can't do it just because of this pandemic. I need a training sites in Rajav, in Gorom, in Wao, Mapel, in Jongole State, the training sites where most of these troops are supposed to assemble for training. Training can't move forward because the finances were supposed to be there. The food for the troops was supposed to be there. And, but and these things are not there. Even before COVID-19 happened. Yes. So now with the COVID-19 as an excuse, uh, everything is on the, on the stop. The mm. presidency, three of the vice presidents were all infected by the COVID-19. Right. Minister who died, who passed on, he was knocked off by COVID-19. He had some diabetic situation and so on, but the COVID-19 came and gave the last kick. Yes, right. Waniga, the vice president Waniga is, is in bed. Michael McQuay, the noisy minister, he's in bed. So the common man, the simple man in the street, the simple woman in the street, I've got this saying, they say, is the COVID-19 or the coronavirus the sickness of the politicians or the sickness of the elite? Because so far, they are just carrying it. Then one said, is it not the hand of God for them not to implementing the peace? coming to, uh, on them. So the common man and woman in the street said, it is the hand of God that is punishing the leadership. Interesting. Who have devoured, who have devoured in implementing the peace, in enhancing the peace, in giving services to the people of South Sudan. Mm-hmm. They created the lockdown and then they uplifted the lockdown immediately because they saw all the poor were going to their homes. You can imagine people going to the house of President Kiir, in spite right. of all the bodyguards. Everyone was going there. He said, we want just a plate of food. What was the end? He had to uplift the, the shutdown. However, the pandemic has caused us great harm. And with the peace process, everything is at standstill. As I speak now, our leadership, the, the government, is doing nothing. It is just on a standstill. Or what they say, the government is in a lockdown. 
The political system is in a lockdown. Nothing is moving. They are afraid of going to meet each other. We don't have the instruments for like what we are doing in a meeting with you now on the Zoom. Mm-hmm. We as partners, the church here and the other USAID in Juba, the Nurin Church Aid, the embassies, we meet with them through Zoom as we are doing now. Mm-hmm. Just to avoid the social distancing. But for the government, they don't have these instruments. So what's the, the concept is that everything is on the standstill. Nothing is moving. Fighting is happening in the area. Nothing is moving. Sometimes back, the chief of staff went. He dared. He went. He told the IOs. He told the nurse, guys, please, we are brothers. We need to hold on. We have got an agreement that binds us together. And as I speak, the Mule had attacked the Laonwer, and now the others want to revenge. There is no government there to stop these people, to enforce the law and order. So with the COVID-19, everything has stopped. I don't know, do we have a state moving or we have only the political leadership in name? Thank you for that. I, I was looking at a list that someone sent me of a number of people who have recently passed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And a number of them are, as you mentioned, not to say that the average common man is not also getting it, but a number of them are military, police, leadership. And so it does seem to be, again, I don't know in terms of the reporting and how it's being done, but it does seem to be having quite a, at least from the numbers that I'm seeing from from this side, it seems to be having a disproportionate effect on, on the leadership, which is interesting. I know that we don't have too much more time, but I wanted to just ask Andrea a little bit about the call for the ceasefire by the Secretary General of the UN and, and of course, by Pope Francis. We know that the UN Security Council, for a variety of their own political reasons, failed to move forward on the ceasefire resolution. But do you think that the Pope's strong support of this measure, did it have any impact on South Sudan? And in addition, where do you think that the ceasefire that you all helped to negotiate for South Sudan with the broader group of parties stands now with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic? So I, I definitely think that the ceasefire is a very delicate process and can be broken at any time. There is an enormous uh, fragility to it. But it's at the same time the strongest indication that the parties may consider something different than active war. And the problem when you have these localized ethnic tensions that Father James was mentioning before that are very serious and a lot of death and a lot of suffering is that clearly there is no enforcing mechanism because the weapons are organized ethnically in small groups in ways in which there is no capacity for overarching control. So the ceasefire, as we see it, is that is an expression of political commitment. And the fact that COVID-19 impeded the follow-up meetings that were supposed to happen in Rome, in Berlin, and in Juba, and so on and so on, it's a serious problem because clearly you need to keep sending messages that peace is not only possible, but is actually happening for peace to be really holding. So our hope is that the process will start again, that people will re-engage. But I wanted to 
stress the overall experience of Santegidio with Arm Group that, yes, you need to move towards disarmament and it's an important step and that sometimes forming a unified army is an important step and so on. But the first most important element is just self-control. If you have a military unit, you must be able to control your own. You must be able to say, attack, not attack. You must be able to say, these are my territories. These are the things that are under my responsibility. And what we feel in South Sudan is that this very structured capacity of the military personnel to control from A to Z, everything under their control is problematic. So yeah, that, I mean, this has long been a problem, this, that ability to control what their own soldiers do in the territory that they claim to control. That's exactly my point. So I think that the ceasefire is really a way for everybody to check where they are and who they are and what they're doing. And I think that self-control is going to be the key to emerging peace in South Sudan. It's less about in-betweenness and much more about the capacity to exert control within your own group, within the group that is really engaging into this process. There will be very complicated discussion about what form of government, what form of states, what are the division of powers and so on. But if you don't have self-control, you will have splintering all the time. I mean, one of the problems that I have is that they are implementing the peace agreement unevenly. I mean, these were aspects that should have taken place and should have been agreed before forming a government of national unity. It was a collective. And when you implement subjectively or partially, you have more of a chance of not fully implementing the agreement. So Father James, let me just turn to you because you mentioned the fact that Basically, everything has stopped, and we know that they are still having disagreements about the state governors and who should get which governorship, and that means that the state structures are not operational. Do you think that, I mean, we've talked about COVID-19. You mentioned earlier about the lack of adequate information. Do you think that that is happening as well with coronavirus And what is the prospect going forward for South Sudan? And I'll ask you the same, Andrea, afterwards. The prospect for going forward for the South Sudanese, for the government in South Sudan, is just to implement the agreement. They must. They must implement. They they have to appoint the governors in the states because there's a vacuum. There's no leadership in the states. There's what we call today this explosion of emotions from the people. People want services. There's right. nobody to deliver services. People want something to, uh, to receive. There's nobody to give that thing. People want jobs. There's nobody to deliver that job. Everything is at a standstill. The government in Juba, these political parties, signatories to the agreement, have this obligation that they had promised with the Holy Father of Francis and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, that they are going to fulfill. We are still waiting. We have called on them as the church in South Sudan, saying, guys, you need to tie your belts. The Pope, 
the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, the Moderable Church of Scotland gave you a homework. Have you done the homework? You have not done the homework. There is nothing of government being formed in the states. Right. People are wrangling who is to take what, who is to receive what. This is what they are wrangling about. So far, since uh, Dr. Yak was locked down for the last two weeks, even three weeks, mm-hmm. now since we, are, we as the church and the civil society in South Sudan are encouraging him and President Kir, they have to meet even five meters among themselves, meet mm-hmm. and try to iron out the issue of the states because there's a vacuum in the states. That's why we have got ethnic violence in the states, communal violence in the states. Even in the home state of President Kir, we have right. got violence there just because there is no leadership. There is no political leadership. Thank you yes, very that- much, Father James. Let me let Andrea answer the question as well. What's next and what can be done or what is Sant'Egidio doing? What's the next step? So Sant'Egidio is trying to reorganize his meeting in Rome that couldn't be done before because of COVID-19. We have good signals. We hope that it will happen soon. I think that there is really a need at this point of a strong popular movement inside South Sudan because really the holder of the hope for peace in South Sudan are the people of South Sudan. And Mm -hmm. the churches have a dramatic role to play because if you look at the history of South Sudan, the churches are really the continuity. Always. From one place to the other. So I, I really hope that in many ways, you know, that swelling of hope will come from the bottom up. I am totally with Father James, you know, in terms of the frustration of the people and the almost the despair. But I really think that South Sudanese people have surprised us many times. And my hope is that they will join the Pope in surprising us for peace. Thank you so much. Andrea, thank you. Father James, would you like to have the last word? We are hopeful in South Sudan. In spite of all these challenges of COVID-19, of the non-peace implementation, the hope is there. There's that surprise hope, like the kissing of the feet of the leadership by the Pope. Our hope is that there's a new day for South Sudan. There's going to be a morning for South Sudan. There's going to be some light at the end of the tunnel for South Sudan. Things are possible with the help and the grace of God and the support of all friends of South Sudan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Father James. We are really appreciative to have had this conversation today. All the best. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the Catholic Peacebuilding Network. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.